you've entered the Paracast with your hosts Gene Steinberg and David Piedney. You know, it's kind of strange here now that the movie The Da Vinci Code is coming out. More and more people are talking about the Bible, about things that we were led to believe that might be different. And I know you're a skeptic about a lot of this, David. What's, what do you think about it all? Well, I wish I was getting the royalties on the Bible. Uh, <laughs> a fascinating piece of historical literature, Gene. There's a lot to learn about the last 2,000 years of history, but I have a lot of issues with this notion that the Bible is A, the literal word of God, B, a historically absolutely accurate. It's a book that's gone through so many revisions and so many interpretations that I really wonder about the validity of a lot of it. And I think what people forget is that the Bible, in many ways, is symbolic, you know, talking about the beginning of the, the world. I don't think that's supposed to be taken literally. You know, the expulsion of Adam and Eve from the Garden of Eden because of biting into the fruit of, 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 of knowledge, the tree of knowledge, I think that's symbolic of the danger of humans flirting excessively with technology without having a decent spiritual underpinning. But did this? was there a Garden of Eden? Was there an Adam and Eve? You know, I mean, that to me is fringier than anything else we've talked about on the show. <laughs> And this is, of course, the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney. And our first guest will be talking about biblical prophecies and the so-called excluded sections of the Bible and a little bit of Nikola Tesla combined. Sean Castile, UFO writer, biblical researcher. And then we have another subject, which in a sense is a follow-up interview we're doing with William Burns, the co-author with the late Philip Corso of The Day After Roswell. And as you know, those have been regular listeners, some of the interviews we've had from Stanton Friedman and from Dennis Balthaser have been rather skeptical about the experience reported by Philip Corso about taking alien technology, feeding them into private industry. And so we asked Bill to come on and answer the critics, and he's going to have some very interesting things to say, and that's coming up on this week's episode. I have a feeling we're not in Kansas anymore. We have William Burns, the publisher of UFO Magazine, on the line. William, can you give us an offer for our readers about getting the magazine? Yes, I sure can. This is UFO Magazine, and I'm Bill Burns, the publisher, and here's an offer for your listeners. We have a special five-issue introductory offer for first-time subscribers, 1995 for your first five issues. Not available anywhere else, but on the Paracast. So, Bill, how do they place the order? People can place orders by going to www.ufomag.com. They can also place orders over the phone at 1-888-UFO-MAGA, or they can write to us at Post Office Box 11013, Marina Del Rey, California, 90295. Bill, give us that contact information again. It is UFO Magazine, Post Office Box 11013, Marina Del Rey, California, 90295, or they can go directly to www.ufomag.com, and they can also call 1-888-UFO-MAGA, and they can subscribe right over the phone with a credit card. 
You're in the Paracats with Gene Steinberg and David Bandy. You never know what's going to happen next. Sean, I'm reading on your website, on your bio, that your take on the UFO subject is biblical. That that these aliens are angelic creatures, not interdimensional or interplanetary beings. Can you expand upon that? Well, I mean, when I say biblical, I, I, I guess in terms of aliens, I mean angelic. There's, there's so many consistencies between what's in the Old and New Testament and, and the way uh, the UFOs and uh, aliens uh, manifest themselves in our time. There, there are so many connections that uh, it's just impossible to dismiss uh, that aspect of the phenomenon. You know, in the case of abduction and modern-day abductions, the, the things people complain of most often are, are, are the fear of it, the fear, the anxiety induced by the experience. Mm-hmm. And, and when, you t- when you're talking about the God of the Bible, you're talking about a fearsome entity. In fact, even the Apostle Paul, who was, you know, an apologist for a kind of uh, universal love uh, interpretation of God, even he, he, he speaks in terms of the terror of the Lord. I mean, no, how, no matter how blessed you are, you still have to encounter the Lord as, as a fearsome entity. There's a, in the book of Proverbs, there's a saying, you know, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. I, and I think that's true for a lot of people. When they get that initial jolt of fear, when they become aware of their experiences, you know, the fear is automatic, and, and, and it's uh, totally consistent with the idea of a biblical uh, religious experience. Well, couldn't we look at the fear of the uh, abduction experience as a real deep fear of the unknown? Versus, sure, I think sure. in the Bible, that God is supposed to be not unknown, but is supposed to be in all of us. Or am I misinterpreting something in the Bible? No, when, when you say uh, the idea of God being in all of us, that's, that's basically a Gnostic idea. That's not really a, an Orthodox idea. The whole, the whole uh, concept of finding God within yourself as opposed to finding God through a collective uh, church experience, I mean, they're really opposite ends of the spectrum there. So... Let's relate this back, though, to UFOs, where, so let's say that, let's talk a little bit more about this angelic aspect, and I want to separate that from a potential interdimensional aspect. Right. Well, you know, I I don't preclude the idea that angels could come from another dimension, that they would move, you know, back and forth between more than one dimension. It's just that, you know, the the idea of interdimensional beings is not in the Bible, but it's still consistent with with, uh, the way angels are and the way the aliens are. In the Bible, Asia... Most people don't know that it's Tesla who was really responsible for alternating current. But, um, Sean, you have some more intense thoughts about Tesla's involvement in things like exploration of space. Could you, uh, could you tell us about that? Well, uh, I'm, I'm not really an expert on Tesla. I've written about Tesla, but I've relied on the, on the expertise of others. But uh, as I understand it, it's just one of those those rumors that uh, Tesla had helped mankind achieve uh, spaceflight as, as as early as the uh, early years of the 20th century. That we'd secretly been to Mars. That the, the Nazis had gotten a hold of the technology and they'd gone to Mars. It's uh, impossible to prove, of course, but it, but it's very interesting speculation. I think we all have that sense that that the government knows more than it's letting on. It may you know it may have some way of seeing into the future that we're not aware of. It may have forms of space travel that we're not aware of. Tesla sort of, you know, the image of Tesla sort of feeds all that because given what he did achieve that we know about above board, given what he achieved there, it's possible he achieved all kinds of things in secret that that we're not aware of and that the government has has effectively suppressed. Well, like what? 
Well, I mean, we're talking again about the, some some means of, of space travel, some means of contacting aliens by radio. Tesla built a, a device that would detect storms from great distances, and instead of detecting storms, he began to get uh, what he felt was a transmission from uh, Martians, from aliens who, who, were, who were reaching out to him through his machinery. Martians from Mars? Yeah, Martians from Mars. I mean, I, I think that was. Oh, <laughs> I love that. Uh. Yeah. <laughs> Well, he said, he said he was receiving some kind of signal that was intelligently controlled and, and, and trying to communicate with him. So who knows what that was? Who knows what that was? But, you know, but you've always speculated that the government knows more than it's letting on about the aliens. Maybe they have some kind of Tesla device that allows them to communicate with aliens. I mean, you know, when you're in this area, any kind of speculation is fair because no one knows the ultimate truth anyway. Well, sure, but certain types of speculation, I think, are a little more far-fetched than others. Um, right. Well, and they said clearly, that, they said that they said that down to the centuries too. Something far-fetched in one century is is the gospel truth of the next. Well, that's certainly true. But I want to revisit this notion of the Nazis going to Mars. What what have you uncovered about that? Because that sounds quite frankly outrageous to me. Well, yeah, it is outrageous. I don't believe it's literally true either. We just presented it as as one of the rumors and theories about the Tesla. But, uh, you know, I, the idea is that, he, that Tesla developed certain uh, kinds of machines that uh, he, he, he didn't trust to go public with, and it became a matter of, of espionage. Uh, the Americans tried to, to get it from him, and the Nazis tried to get it from him, and when he died, his, his books and papers were confiscated by the government, so we'll never right. know what was in all those books and papers. He's just a mysterious figure that uh, you, you can't really provide too many hard answers about. But the speculation is interesting. It appeals to the imagination. It, it leads you to think in certain ways, to see certain possibilities. And we're all about trying to expand our imaginations. But the other thing about the Paracast, Sean, is that we're, we're trying to search for some hard truth here. Uh -huh. In as much as we can arrive at certain hard truths. And I'm curious to know more about, and Gene, you know, please jump in here at any moment, but I'd like to know more about this take of, you know, your take of UFOs being something that is somehow tied to biblical episodes, to biblical writings. Because I think a lot of people have a, a hard time, even with the Bible, um, as like, you know, people who are religious say the Bible is the literal word of God. And you know, any reasonable people person would say, well, there's a lot of problems with that. Well, you know, I, I don't think the Bible is perfect. It's not a perfect work. I mean, I, I, I'm not a fundamentalist in those terms. I realize the Bible was written by people, by imperfect people, who were doing the best they could to, to make sense of the world around them and, and to reach out to a God that loves them. But, uh, I don't know, it, it's... Uh, the connections are so many. Of course, the Ezekiel one is the most famous one, where Ezekiel reports seeing, you know, wheels within a wheel and a lion's face and a man's face on a, on a ship, that kind of thing. But there, there's, there's, there's countless other examples. Uh, when Moses was leading the Israelites through the desert, they were led by a pillar of fire by night, which is, you know, quite easy to translate into a UFO. And then Elijah was taken up to the heavens in a, in a chariot of fire. Those are, those are like the old standby classic ones. But I, I dug out some stuff that I thought was also related. Uh, the book of Isaiah, for instance, says, God says, who are you to judge me in this alien deed I do? So he refers to himself as an alien, and he talks about uh, making a new form of children. I, I don't have the exact uh, chapter and verse on it in my head right now. But, but, but you can find references to UFOs all through the Bible, but besides just the obvious ones, besides just the, the standard ones you hear all the time. You've entered another dimension. You've entered the Paracast.
You're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Bietney. We're talking to Sean Castillo. Well, I guess we call it UFO research, biblical research, etc., etc. Sean, before David and I continue peppering you with questions, could you tell us what books you have out there that our listeners might be interested in? Well, we've, we, we've had one come back from the press just two weeks ago, and it, it's available uh, from Interlight uh, Global Communications. It's called The Excluded Books of the Bible. Whoa. It's essentially uh, hmm. my take on, on some of the Gnostic scriptures that you hear so much about. They're, they're, they're real hot right now, which was, which was really fortunate, because when we began this book, we weren't really expecting all this interest and excitement to be going on, but it, it worked out very well. So. Does this also, tie into uh, the writings in the Da Vinci Code? Pardon me? Is this in any way related to the stuff in the Da Vinci Code? It is, but but not directly. We, we weren't really doing it in response to the Da Vinci Code. Right. But yeah, it deals with, with many of the same scriptures that are in the Da Vinci Code. For instance, uh, the Gospel of Mary, wherever Christ chooses Mary as his favorite disciple, chooses a woman over all of the male disciples. We've got a chapter on uh, this God, Gospel of Judas that came out recently, and uh, it's, it's, just, it's just a totally different view of Christianity. And, you know, you might think a much more human view of Christianity, where Christ is, you know, has obvious flaws and stuff like that. Which again is is not fundamentalism, but it's more like to me that's more likely true that Christ was a blessed entity, but he was also an imperfect one. Mm-hmm. So, what is your take on that? Do you believe that these excluded portions of the Bible are reflecting something that's authentic? I don't know. Again, that's really impossible to say. I mean, I I, I was studying them quite intensely for the two months I was writing the book. And whether any of it's true or not, it's, you, you sort of have to acclimate yourself. When you first start reading this stuff, if you haven't had exposure to the Gnostics before, and you see the, these flagrant deviations from what you're told in, in the regular New Testament, it, it almost seems like you're you're reading blasphemy at times. But, but, but it, on the other hand, it's so fascinating that you, that you can't turn away. Well, Sean, what about societies and cultures, civilizations that existed before the Judeo-Christian realm? I mean, we're talking, you know, think we in the show we've talked about the Sumerians. Right. Um, we haven't really talked about the Etruscans yet, but there are these civilizations, in some cases fairly advanced technologically, that came, you know, before the Judeo-Christian era. I mean, what are your thoughts sure. about these uh, well, civilizations? I believe they're in genuine contact, too. I, I believe, you know, that... That there's been a plan for human history, and it, you know, as far as we know, it began with Samaria. But uh, I don't think Samaria was on its own. I think they had just as much alien help and alien contact as the Jews did uh, centuries later. So you have looked into this topic. Yeah, I've read. I've read a little on that. Yeah, my main interest is the Bible, but I've read other books that, that deal with ancient societies. The sixty million dollar question, or sixty four billion dollar question, is why were these passages excluded? Was it a conscious decision on the part of the people who put the Bible together to restrict certain types of information? Well, I mean, it's, it's, it's a matter of, of uh, heresy. The thing about Gnosticism is, the most basic principle of Gnosticism is that it's an individual experience. You look within yourself and you find God. The more you come to know yourself, the more you come to know God. But it's an individual experience. No one, no one can just give it to you. But uh, the church, on the other hand, the Orthodox Church, in order to, to you know keep a political control of its people, did not you know did not agree with this idea that you could find God on your own. In order to find God, you needed to join a church and be subject to a priest, and the priest subject to a bishop, and so on. So it, it's uh, it's the individual experience versus the collective experience. So of course the collective people, the Orthodox people, since they were better organized, 
forth. They're the branch of Christianity that survived. While the Gnostics, being an individual-based uh, thing, sort of faded away. I mean, they were called heresy from the beginning, really. And uh, they, they just couldn't outlast uh, the, the better political organization of the Orthodox Church. It sounds like there are modern parallels with that, Sean, and the rise of the fundamentalist right in the United States. Better right. organized and more money. Exactly, yeah. Which is, you know, of course, why they've come to dominate the religious uh, mainstream of, of the country. Maybe human ignorance has something to do with that, too. Yeah, or the need to belong to something bigger than yourself, that kind of thing. Which is a very human need. I think I think we're, we're all like that. We, we want to belong to something bigger than ourselves. That's why we're interested in this subject to begin with. Sure. We want to understand something about the nature of reality, too. Right. You've entered another dimension. You've entered the Paracast. lines you're listening to the paracast with gene steinberg and david biedney we're talking with sean castile today trying to understand his views on ufos the paranormal and how it relates to older aspects of human culture the bible gene what's on your mind well i'm always looking at the differences in the bible with what we kind of been taught to believe especially with these excluded passages but i'm also looking at the things that predict the possibility of ufos and the question i would have here is do you feel at all like some do that maybe a lot of these biblical incidents or stories relate to visitations by alien beings Sure, sure. I believe that very much. That's one of the foundations that uh, my book, uh, UFO's Prophecy in the End of Time, was based on. So, yeah, I very much believe that uh, the contact, uh, those contact experiences in the Bible are genuine contact with aliens. Okay, well, let's be more specific about that. Now, what do you think in the Bible reflects alien contact? Do you think even Jesus might have been a visitor from another world rather than a deity as is common in our collective beliefs these days? Yeah, I, I think the question of who Jesus was is still uh, totally wide open. In the new book, or the excluded books of the Bible, we, we, I quote a passage from uh, Joseph Campbell's book, uh, The Mass of God, and he talks about this uh, Gnostic uh, fragment that I've never been able to find anywhere else except in Joseph Campbell's book. But it talks about two of the disciples when they're, they're out fishing, you know, how, how Christ went out and called his disciples before he began his ministry. They're out fishing, and, and they see this figure on the shore beckoning to them. I think it's the brothers uh, John and Andrew or something. So they see the figure on the shore beckoning at them. They both see someone there, but they see totally differently who's there. One of them imagines uh, mm. uh, an older man with a beard. The other one imagines a short, balding man. Not imagine, but, but you know, that's what they're seeing. So uh, they, they come ashore, and, and they still can't agree on what they're seeing. So when they see this... The disciple that sees a small balding man, I've often wondered if that was a gray that he was seeing, a simple gray that was sort of changing form back and forth. I mean, Christ, uh, like I said, is wide open. He could, have, he could have been an alien. He could have even been a gray alien. He could have been a simple mortal. He could have been an imperfect uh, Jewish man. But 
So you never know with that kind of thing. Sean, what are your thoughts about what motivation potential aliens would have in the evolution of humanity? I mean, if if indeed some of your thoughts about this have some, some basis in reality, it would assume that these creatures, these angelic beings, have some agenda here. What do you think that agenda is? I don't know. I, I, again, it's, it's very hard to say. Uh, when the prophecies have been fulfilled, when everything has been fulfilled, then uh, we're, we're told the earth is going to be a paradise where God lives here with us. God is not, you know, high in the sky away from us. He's living right on earth with us. So I suppose their most basic goal is to, is to save who they can and, and then bring them to a kind of perfection, a kind of timeless uh, perfection in eternity. Let's look at the more practical specifics of that, Sean. Now, item number one, what do the prophecies show? Are we talking about the so-called end times here? Yeah, right. Of course, the end times, when you're talking about the end times, about doomsday, it's never going to be total. The earth is not going to be completely destroyed by whatever, you know, warfare, nukes, plagues, famines, whatever. We're not going to be totally destroyed by that. There's going to be a remnant of the earth that Christ will return to. And, and I see Christ returning in, in ships with his angels all around him ready to do battle, that kind of thing. So once uh, once he wrests control of the world from the devil, gets it out of the devil's grip, then they begin to build perfection here on Earth. Beyond beyond enjoying eternity, I don't see what other motiva- motivation people could have. You see what I'm saying? I mean, that is, I suppose, the best outcome possible is to spend eternity in a, in a kind of paradise. And the angels have a role in leading us to that. As servants of God, they're leading uh, certain chosen ones to that. See, to me, Sean, uh, I have to be a little skeptical about this, because what you're, what you're describing sounds like an expression of human vanity, that the earth would be paradise. Uh, if you were a, a creature that breathed pure nitrogen and needed ammonia instead of water, the earth is hell. Right. I mean, I just want well, to understand you know, where you're coming from with this, because a lot of this, even the Bible is a work. It's it's a very interesting attempt to document human behavior, some aspect of of human history. But again, it's relatively contemporary as far as what we know about the history of human beings and human civilizations. It is by no means the oldest work. It's by no means an expression of the oldest civilization. So it kind of negates anything outside of the Judeo christian you know standard right well i i I think you might be misunderstanding me a little i mean i'm not exclusively biblical i don't believe the bible is the only word of truth out there right i I think god embraces all religions i think you know the buddhist is just as holy the hindu is just as holy i mean i read the bhagavad gita several years ago read a translation of it and i thought surely this is the same voice as the old testament god i mean you know the hindus follow the same god expressed in nearly the same kind of poetic term. I mean, it's, it's a sort of terrifying poetry in the Old Testament and the Hindu scripture, and, and on and on and on. I mean, I don't believe only in the Judeo-Christian tradition. It's just, for me as, as a Westerner, it's easier for me to see through that, because I grew up with that. Right. But, I, but I certainly don't preclude other religions or earlier civilizations or anything like that. I, I think it's, it's, more, it's more inclusive than, than just, you know, Jews and Christians and so forth. Well, it's kind of interesting that even in the Quran, uh, the Quran, my understanding, talks about Jesus as well. So there seems to be some cross-pollination. A question for you about the end times. Correct me if I'm wrong, but someone recently told me that the notion of Armageddon 
is not in the Old Testament. Is that true? Uh, I don't know. There's, there's a passage in Ezekiel. I forget exactly what the chapter is. It might be chapter 38. I'm not quite sure. But the, that talks about the, the battle between Gog and Magog, which, which, when you read it closely, does seem, seem like a, an ultimate final battle. I think it's the, Gog and Magog are even made reference to again in uh, Revelation. I'm not totally sure about that. But uh, you, you do have certain apocalyptic verses in the Old Testament, though they're certainly not as dramatic as the ones in the New Testament. Right, about you know, the, the Lord specific... Talks about his, his, his coming against the world with his own weapons, the weapons of the Lord, and then laying waste, you know, the Jews' enemies, so forth, like that. Hmm. I'm just trying to reconcile this with our current history and all the things that are going on in the world. Would you say that we are right now in the end times? Yes, I would, but uh, I do want to qualify that by saying that uh, I, I very much uh, believe that uh, there's a verse in the gospel, no man knows the day or the hour. Not the angels in heaven, only God himself knows the day or the hour. So we could be living in the end times. I felt we've been li we were living in the end times since 1978 when, when I first converted. So I mean, that's, that's, that's almost 30 years of, of thinking we're in the end times. So I think as I get older, I wonder if it's going to happen in my lifetime. When you say you first converted, from what to what? Well, I was sort of a, a lapsed Christian, and then I was baptized uh, into the Christian denomination. That was back in 78, so a long time ago. But I've been studying the Bible ever since. What was your background growing up, Sean? How did you get involved in even being interested in the paranormal? Well, you know, it certainly wasn't from my raising. Neither one of my parents believed in the paranormal. Uh, it's kind of hard to say. I mean, I... I I was like uh, 19 years old, and I, I moved to Austin, Texas, to try to uh, to make it as a songwriter back in the 70s when you know country rock was so popular. Mm -hmm. And I just you know I, I began to realize this this just wasn't what I wanted. And pursuing the, the music thing just wasn't what I wanted. So I guess I drifted uh, into Christianity. Next, I started reading everything I could get my hands on about uh, you know me and times, Hal Lindsey, that kind of stuff. And then after I read Communion, I began to relate certain things that uh, happened in Whitley's book. I began to realize I had some of those same experiences. Whoa, 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 whoa. You just raised another question, which mm. is... You've entered another dimension. You've entered the Paracast. But before we ask him to answer that question, we'll remind listeners you're in the PowerCast with Gene Steinberg and David Bietney. We're talking to Sean Castile, UFO and biblical researcher. And now, mentioning something there, Sean, that things you read in Communion by Whitley Strieber mirror some things in your life. Are you an abductee? Yes, I think I am, yeah. I've never had the hypnosis. I've been advised not to have the hypnosis. Uh -huh. But I've got certain... I've had, I've, I've had certain experiences that I'm pretty sure are definite contact experiences, abduction experiences. And I had a really close sighting of some ships, too, at one point. So, Could you tell us a little bit about those sightings? Well, the, 
The easiest one to remember happened in 1982. I was living in, a, in an apartment in Norman, Oklahoma, which is a college town, uh, attending the University of Oklahoma. And I went out one night uh, for a pizza. I walked up the street to a Domino's up the street and ordered a pizza. And then I started walking back home because I figured, you know, I paid for it and they'll deliver it and all like that. So as I'm walking back home, I look up over my apartment complex, and there's these two ships silently flying by. They're hard to describe. They weren't disc-shaped. I, I really have a hard time trying to describe the shape of them. But they flew right over the apartment complex. One was a bright gold. The other was a bright green. And then, you know, I wake up in my bed. I wake up in my bed in my apartment, and the pizza had, had never gotten there. So I, I not only had a, had a sighting of some ships, I had some missing time there also. You also had a pizza dream. Yeah. <laughs> I had a pizza what? A pizza dream. Yeah, I don't know. I don't, I don't remember dreaming about the pizza, but I, I do know that even though I paid for it, you know, I must have been either in the ships or, or somewhere when they actually tried to deliver the pizza. I have a question, too. Were you? Did you pay with a credit card? Do you actually find this on your bill? Uh, no. I I'm being serious kind of here, if you understand my point. Yeah, yeah. Well, I know. Yeah, go back and try to document that. Right. No, that, was so, that was so long ago, though. I mean, that was, that was over 20 years ago. So. This is before college students could readily get credit cards. I'm sure Sean paid cash. Yeah, I'm pretty sure I did, too. <laughs> yeah. But, uh, so... Go ahead, Jim. I'm being half serious here, but you, you get the point. I'm just interrupting you because it struck me as being kind of funny, but then that could be, what is the word that Whitley Strieber uses, some kind of memory concealant technique? I can't All think. All memories? Yes. Oh, I, mean, I know what you're talking about. Uh, I think Bud Hopkins was screen memories. Right, screen oh, memories. Oh, yeah. Yeah, Bud Hopkins was like that, too. So you had missing time, is what you're telling us, that you had two hours of missing time that you could not account for. It. You woke up in your bed. Right. Now, you at this point, you've never gone back and said, hey, maybe I should find out. I'm a writer on these subjects. I've been reading about them. Let me find out what happened to me. You haven't thought about that. Well, you know, I talked to, talked to Bud about it several times. I talked to Whitley. Bud is like the biggest expert there is on abduction. I mean, you don't get any more knowledgeable than Bud. And Bud and I were talking about this one day, and he said, you know, you should never get the hypnosis. He says, given all you know after your years of research, you could never figure out what was real and what wasn't mm -hmm. under the hypnosis. And he said, it was, it was, you know, it, his standard statement is, unless not knowing what happened to you is disruptive to your life, you should just let it go which I've been willing to do. So I, I think he's right about that. I think it would, it would way too much complicate things. In what and sense would it complicate things? I, I know Raymond Fowler talked about this. When, when you're under hypnosis and reliving your experience, it's not like a photographic thing. It's still just mental images flashing in your head. It, it, it's like normal memories. I mean, you don't have a photographic sense of what's happening to you. And, and because of that, it becomes very confused. It becomes very confabulated. Uh, Raymond Fowler was under hypnosis, and he cried out at one point. He was so confused. He couldn't tell what was real memories and what was just his own knowledge of the phenomenon intruding on his memory. So, you know, I, it would, if you try to go through that and then sort out the truth, it becomes impossible. It becomes like, you know, it's frustrating enough to drive you nuts, I would think. Well, that raises the larger question about abductions. A lot of times, the only evidence we have is the hypnotic regression. So right. what you're suggesting here is that it's quite possible that a lot of that information is just not so or so distorted 
because of the way the mind fixes or adjusts the information that we really can't get much of a handle on what really happened except that something happened and maybe it does relate to some kind of abduction attempt but that's it that's it I, well i think everybody's aware of that problem i mean uh, uh, hopkins and, and david jacobs i mean they're all aware of those complications and the hypnosis is certainly not a perfect tool but you know there's, there's still occasional uh, signs left like you know like the marks left on the body the, the punch biopsy type marks and, and the implants themselves which you know have shown up on x-rays and, and you were talking about roger lear even removing yeah. some i mean i've talked to roger lear several times and he talks about how the implants come out with this sort of membrane around them that's, that's just medically perfect because even though it's a foreign body it doesn't it doesn't cause any irritation to the surrounding area he said, you know, if we could figure out how to wrap a liver or something in that membrane, that we'd never have rejection problems when we do transplants. So, I mean, there's a lot of there's a lot of mysteries there. But uh, so, do you ever think that maybe you have an implant of some kind? Maybe we should call Doctor Lear after we talk. Exactly, to him. What I was going to ask. Right. <laughs> I, I don't know. I'm sure you know. Being a standard abductee, I must have a certain number of implants. I do hear a high pitched sound in my ears from time to time. It's not like a ringing. It's like this high-pitched tone that it seems like it's coming from right above my ears. But um, so I assume that some kind of implant is making that noise. But what that actually means, I have no idea. That's weird that you mentioned that, Sean, because I actually I have had I know that sound you're talking about. It's like all of a sudden uh, it comes up. You you hear it almost above your ear, right? And then it it kind of fades out after like ten or twenty seconds. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. That's just strange that you bring that up. Oh, David, are you hiding something from us here? I, I don't know, Gene, but I, the minute that Sean described that sound, I knew what he's talking about. That's weird. Mm. Yeah. Hmm. Well, we must have that in common for, for a reason. Well, it's something that we have to explore on the show, and I'm being serious about it now. That is, is something that we have to explore. I do want to tell you, we only have a few moments left for this little discussion, so I just want to kind of quickly go over these books that you have. Number one, you have this Excluded Books of the Bible book that's coming out now. What's it called? Called The Excluded Books of the Bible, yeah. Okay. That's, and that's, uh, that's available now. Uh, you can get it on. On, it should be available on Amazon pretty soon, but if you want to order it uh, directly from the publisher, then you just go to the publisher's uh, website, Tim Beckley's uh, website, Okay. and it's, and it's just www.conspiracyjournal.com. Then you have UFOs, Prophecy, and the End of Times, same source? Right. Right. Yeah, same source, same publisher, same source. In fact, uh, you can get the excluded books of the Bible. They're selling it as like a combination package with another book I did called Signs and Symbols of the Second Coming. So uh, I don't know how long this uh, deal is going to last. You can get both books, the excluded books of the Bible and uh, Signs and Symbols of the Second Coming. And Signs and Symbols of the Second Coming also has a free uh, CD with it where uh, I'm interviewed for like 45 minutes about the book. So you get uh, two books and a free CD. Mm. Sounds like a great Excellent. package. Thank you very much, Sean Castile, UFO researcher, biblical researcher, talking about the excluded portions of the Bible, biblical prophecies, UFOs, and the fact that he is evidently an abductee. And maybe I'm going to have to ask David a few questions about that in a moment. <laughs> Sean, thank you for joining us. Well, thanks, thanks Sean. Fake Magazine provides true reports of the strange and unknown.
Keep up with the latest on angels and miracles, psychic phenomena, ghosts, UFOs, life after death, and much, much more. To receive your free issue of Fate Magazine, call now at 1-800-728-2730 or visit their website at www.fatemag.com. That's 1-800-728-2730 or www.fatemag.com. What are you waiting for? Your fate awaits. In the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney. You never know what's going to happen next. All right, so that was interesting, but I got to tell you, Gene, it, it's a little out there. And I want to qualify this. Perhaps some of Sean's thoughts are coming from a religious place and not necessarily a scientific or analytical place. You know, and, and that makes me a little less than thrilled. Just, just to be honest. I think when I was asking him the question, the very key question, about when we would be in the end times, and he took a very religious interpretation, which unfortunately doesn't give us any information that's solid. It just simply says, well, it's going to happen, and maybe it's there now, but we don't know. It's kind of vague. And, you know, it's, it's one of these things where there's this over-reliance on emotion versus fact, and I think that, you know, Sean is a fascinating guy. He obviously has read about a lot of things, but I was hoping he could expand some of our understanding about some of these topics. I don't, I don't know that we got that. Maybe we'll have to have him back. I think so. I think we just opened up a lot of issues that have to be explored further. But we're opening up some really important doors in our next interview with William Burns, the publisher of UFO Magazine and the co-author of The Day After Roswell with the late Philip Corso. This is Tim Beckley, Mr. UFO, reporting for ConspiracyJournal.com. Fascinated by the strange and unknown, things that go bump in the night, UFOs, time travel, Area 51, the Philadelphia Experiment, shady government cover-ups? Don't be left out in the lunar cold. Sign up now for our weekly online newsletter and receive our snail mail catalogs. Go to ConspiracyJournal.com or email Tim Beckley at MrUFO at WebTV.net. It's all out of this world. So, Bill, there have been a number of criticisms leveled against what Philip Corso has to say in the book you co-authored the day after Roswell. In general, before we ask about specifics, do you have some responses to make? Oh, sure. Um, well, it's good to be back, Gene. Remember, the book is 10 years old now, and we actually wrote the book uh, between 1994 and 1995, and then revised it in 96 when we delivered it so that it could be delivered in 97, uh, published in 97. So on the one hand, I'm well aware that over the 10 years since we did the manuscript, uh, there have been a lot of uh, criticisms of the book, and a lot of them are justified. I was the first one to say this back in 1998, and I'll really say it again. A lot of the critis- uh, criticisms are justified for a number of reasons. One was that Corso was dying at the time we were writing the manuscript. Now, I didn't know this. He knew this, and his family knew this, and he was on very heavy pain medication. So there were a number of different previous drafts of the manuscript that had been edited by other editors who either didn't understand the technology or certainly didn't understand the UFO field or the military. And so one of the first things I had to do was kind of cull for 
for all the inconsistencies between the manuscripts. That was one. Then there were some basic errors in terms of names. I think I think the name Wisner was misplaced. There, there were other errors in terms of names that made it into the final manuscript. So those are the basic errors that were there. Then a lot of people read the manuscript and basically misinterpreted one of the core elements, one of the core statements that, that, that Corso was making. He wasn't saying that we didn't have this technology on planet Earth before the Roswell craft crashed and he took this material to industry. He was saying that a lot of the technology was still in development or in pre-industrial development at various places. And what he showed various companies were models from the future of the kinds of technology that they could develop from the research they were doing. In other words, that explains the miniaturized integrated circuits. Now, first integrated circuit patents were all the way back, I think, um, Royce uh, and others, Intel had them uh, here in uh, California in uh, the late 1950s. That was the beginning of the growth of Silicon Valley. And obviously they made their way into the IBM mini computer systems. I mean, you'll remember that with your technological background. You remember that not the desk size, but the room-sized IBM 360 series back in the middle 1960s that were out. They had versions of integrated circuitry. They certainly had transistors at that time. But it wasn't until the 1970s, middle 1970s, that the first really reduced microcomputers, remember the Altair, the computer kits came out. So Corso didn't say we invented the integrated circuit. Corso said that in the craft there were micro-mini pieces of integrated circuit connections, and these were the kinds of debris, pieces of debris, that he took to IBM and AT&T, it wasn't AT&T back then, but he took to, to IBM and showed them. And so from the early experiments with integrated circuitry all the way back in the, in the 1950s that Intel was doing, these were jumps ahead of that. So I think there has been not a misunderstanding, but a real misinterpretation of the kind of message the Corso was giving. You're in the PowerCast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney. We're proud to welcome... William Burns, publisher of UFO Magazine and co-author of The Day After Roswell with the late Philip Corso. Now, I read the book very recently for the first time, Bill, and I agree with you. He's not so much saying that these developments or this technology from the aliens necessarily helped us invent these things, but jump-started development. So say you're at step one, you need to go to step seven. This would fill in the intervening steps so you can get there. That's right. That's exactly what he said. And, for example, I think the best example is the invention of the transistor, which, as you know, anybody who really knows the, the history of technology, it was a very exciting thing. Bertain and Shockley had been working on the transistor since the 1930s. And the importance of the transistor was that ever since the, the 19th century, radio tubes, the, the Edison tube, basically the light bulb, right? You're passing current through a filament. That device was 19th century technology. And what Pertain and Shockley were working on was a way to pass single electrons 
instead of through a filament, but through a medium that allowed an electron to go one way, only one at a time, and control it. And they, were, they had been trying this for about 10 years and were unsuccessful in getting a controlled circuit. And suddenly, in late 1947, miraculously, they succeeded. And by 1948, 1949, those were the first patents of the transistor. Now, I'm not saying that Corso brought this to, to Bertain and Shockley. He didn't. He doesn't say that. He gives another story. And so by 1950s, as you'll remember, all of us were walking around Brooklyn with those little transistor radios listening to the Dodgers. So, I mean, that was a really quick development of the industrial transistor from late 1947. What Corso said was this, that long before he came to, well, well, actually, he was at Fort Riley, Kansas, long before he came to Army R&D, Truman, being knowledgeable at this point of the July crash outside of Roswell, told either Nathan Twining or one of the generals on his staff, find a way to get the lowest common denominator of the technology that drove this craft into industry. And the lowest common denominator that they could figure out was the circuitry. And so they brought this to Lucent Technologies, AT&T, actually Western Electric, because they knew that, that Bertain and Shockley had been working on this for over 10 years, and brought this to them. And supposedly they saw it, and what they found was that the, I guess the silicon base had been doped with arsenic. And that allowed them the control of the single electron in only one direction. And so very quickly after seeing this and seeing the chemical composition of what the base was, they were able to fabricate a transistor and sure enough um, had patented it the following year. So, I mean, that's a classic example. This thing has been in development for 10 years. Oh, here's the other interesting feature about that. After they developed the transistor, after it was patented, the story goes that Bertain and Shockley then reverse-engineered their workbench notes. They didn't have workbench notes for this. They reverse-engineered them. They created them back to the 1930s, so as to have the notes in support of their patent, because as you know what the patenting process is. So a fascinating story. What it tells me is that this was a corollary to what Corso wrote that he was up to what, 13 years before Corso got there. So he didn't even invent the process of taking this material to industry and saying, look what we found at Roswell, can you develop? He didn't invent it. That had been done, what, 13 years earlier by the Army. So, and it was the Army, obviously, that was in charge of this next go-round. And the question is, what happened between 1940s, at least for me, one of the questions that I asked, uh, Phil Corso, was, listen, if we've been doing this since 1947, what happened? W why did we stop? We certainly had the Roswell material. It was in the Pentagon. We, we knew about the alien. People had seen the alien, and the Army Air College had seen the alien. So uh, there were a cadre of military officers who knew about the Roswell crash, had seen the technology, had seen the alien. Why did it take over a decade for you to be asked to do this again. And I remind you, this was not Corso's idea, this was General Trudeau's idea, in part because Senator Strom Thurmond had said to him that the Armed Services Committee in the Senate would not fund 
the Army's development of this exotic technology, and you can define exotic technology any way you want to, but the Armed Services Committee wouldn't fund this unless this technology was invented here. Again, you can define it any way you want to. And this exchange, this conversation, is in General Trudeau's memoirs. And again, I say to anybody in the audience, there's nothing top secret about this. Write the Army War College in Carlisle, Pennsylvania. Request a copy of Arthur Trudeau's memoirs of his life as an Army engineer and intelligence officer, and they will send it to you. They may charge you for the Xeroxing, but they will send it to you. You've entered another dimension. You've entered the Paracast. You're in the Powercast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney. We're talking to William Burns, publisher of UFO Magazine. Go to ufomag.com to learn more about the publication. And we're talking about the book he co-authored with the late Philip Corso, The Day After Roswell. David, I think you're champing at the bit with the question. I can just <laughs> sense the breathing, the breaths you're taking. Go ahead, please. You are indeed correct, Mr. Steinberg. Bill, so there are two questions that come to mind from what you've just described. Question number one, if indeed there was an interface with industry about evaluating this technology, I mean, you just said that um, AT&T had people see this technology and figure out the arsenic doping that was a key, key element to the success of developing ICs. Has anybody from industry in any way that you know come forward with any comments or any revelations about this? I have to believe that there were more than one point of, well, certainly we're talking about more than one point of contact in, in private industries. Have any of these people come out? And then question number two, you keep saying the alien. Is the idea that there was a living creature retrieved from this crash? The short answer to both your questions is yes. Uh, people from industry have come forward, and, and this is very funny. Let me answer the second question first. Okay. Yes, the 1947, and this is going to be, by the way, for everybody, this will be the feature story in the June issue of UFO magazine. We have found yet another Roswell witness. This was of a World War II fighter ace whose name was Marion M. Magruder, Black Mac Magruder. I, I, I'll be happy to come back and talk about this person, a real famous Marine fighter pilot in World War II. No kidding. Um, we're going to publish his military record. It'll blow you away what this guy did. You can find his picture, by the way, on the cover of one of Microsoft's flight simulator software packages. I don't know that they got the family's permission. All I know is that there was a very famous photo of him back from World War II in his cockpit. You will see this on the cover of UFO magazine. He looks like a cross between Tyrone Power and George Clooney. And um, <laughs> Oh, boy. Uh, okay, I know that everybody is like, this, this will be, I, I am so excited about this cover, I can hardly wait for it to June. Actually, I can because I'm studying for the bar, so I'd like for May not to pass so fast. But I can hardly wait until this thing is done. In any event, this person, ready for this story? This is so great. 
sure, go ahead. Person. Yeah, right. This person <laughs> was a member of the Air War College. He was a student at the Air War College. And as you all know, going to senior officer grade, you attend one of the colleges. And he was basically getting what amounts to a master's degree, right? You've got to write a thesis for this. This class in July 1947, they were flown to Wright Field. This is an answer to Dave's question. They were flown to Wright Field. We go into this heavily in the article. Why did this happen? Why were they flown to Wright Field? I surmise, and Mac Magruder surmised, he told his children, that the Army had not yet made its decision to cover this up to inside the Pentagon. Hmm. That there was a cover-up on the outside, we all know that because General Ramey was ordered to, to say that it was a weather balloon. But the Army itself did not know what to do with this. They were stymied. This was only, this was July, the end of July. So they were basically still looking at this thing. The alien gentleman was still alive at Wright-Patterson, and this class viewed the alien. They didn't go up and shake hands, but they viewed the alien firsthand. And what was Marion Magruder's description of the alien? He said it was squiggly. Squiggly does not describe a dead alien lying on an autopsy table. Squiggly describes the movement of a living being. And in that moment, he said it was completely humanoid. It didn't have the oversized black eyes. It had a larger disproportionately larger head and it had longer squiggly arms but it had a face like a human face except it was different and that's what made it more nightmarish because you're looking at this face and it wasn't human it had eyes it had no nose it just had simply two slots a very flat little nose and just a tiny slit for a mouth as if the mouth wasn't hadn't been used for eating. I was struck by the description between that alien and Corso's description of the alien in 1947, but that was my own impression. But it was his description of the alien. He said it was not, it was not green. It was not especially gray. It was flesh tone. A dead alien wouldn't be flesh tone. It would be cadaverous. And of course, he wasn't watching a color movie. He, it, he was watching it in real life. So the answer is yes. This person saw a living alien and he was a member of the class at the Air War College in 1947. They were all there and they all saw this alien. This is unlike any description of anything we've heard up until now. Uh, this is indeed a, a, a living description. But it's it sounds unlike any description of any of the creatures that we've heard described in this lore up until now. Well, I mean, the, the prototypical description is, is the gray with large black eyes. But you're saying this was beige-colored, and it had human eyes. Yes, it had human eyes, it had human eyes, and it oh. is flesh-toned. Now, here's what's so fascinating. I can go off on the social implications of this, because, and I don't want to deviate from your, answer, uh, from your questions, but in large measure, there has been a lot of talk about how the 1960s vision of the alien that appeared in Star Trek, which was what, 63, 64, that appeared in Outer Limits, and that was 61, had influenced how we were, it, it created a mental set. And what I'm wondering is if somehow either 
this alien is different from other aliens. And what Magruder said, what Mac Magruder said, was that he was told, this is another stunning piece, stunning revelation. The man is dead. He died in 1997. He never wrote a book, never tried to sell a movie. His children knew this for something like 30 years and sat on this. Now, the reason I'm saying this is that there was no compulsion for anybody to fabricate this story. I, and I, I say that really important. It's like the only other piece of Roswell information that I have where I can tell you straightforwardly that there was no compulsion whatsoever to fabricate a story, and that was Inez Wilcox's diary of the night uh, Brazel brought the Roswell debris into the um, Roswell jail for her husband to, to keep secret because um, he was so astounded by it. And she wrote this in a diary called My Year in the Roswell Jail. And she wrote about this one night in 1947 when the UFO crashed. This is an unpublished journal. By the way, readers can find this in UFO magazine in Our Children of Roswell, and I'll reprint it in Our Children of Roswell issue. But um, there was the diary. What was her compulsion? She never even came forward with this. Her daughter, Phyllis, gave this to us after her mother had died. This is an astounding revelation, right? A private revelation. Same thing with this story. There's no movie. There's no uh, book. This is simply the recollections of an individual who died in 1997 as retold by his children. Here's what he said, that he was told, the class was told, not he. Nobody took him aside and said, listen, here's something for you alone. The class was told. They were briefed on the Roswell crash before they saw the debris. They saw the debris. They handled the debris. <clears throat> they told the class there were two species of aliens, races of aliens, species of aliens. Call them what you want to. One was nicknamed the Greens. One was nicknamed the Greys. One of them were mildly benevolent. It's that they didn't really care, right? There was no hostility. One was actively hostile. You've entered another dimension. You've entered the Paracast. I'll tell you what, let me hold that thought. Tell everybody you're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Bietney. We're proud to have William Burns, publisher of UFO Magazine. And we're talking about the aftermath of the book he wrote with the late Philip Corso, The Day After Roswell. New discoveries that appear to definitely enhance what the late Philip Corso had to say. Now, you were referring to this other gentleman and what he said, and I wanted to ask you a fast question before kind of going back to Philip Corso, and then you can go back mm -hmm. to this particular point. And that is, I have always wondered here, and you add an element I didn't know, that he knew he was dying when this book was being written. So here's right. a man in his 80s, mm -hmm. the end of his life, he's dying, he knows he's dying, and that he's not going to earn a spectacular amount of money for himself he's not going to get fame and fortune what would his motive have been to fake all this and the answer is i don't see it 
I don't no, see it. No, the answer is what was, uh, the there was no motive. Right, I, I agree with you. Although, I, again, I, I, I have to be honest here. When one comes forward and tells a story, there is an element of, gee, maybe this will be a movie. Let's, and this is the, and this is another part of the backstory to Corso, which is that this book didn't come out of nowhere. This book was part of a life story that had been purchased, options slash purchased, by a Hollywood motion picture company. So there was, over the horizon, the thought of very strong, well-published book that would make a lot of money for his family, and a motion picture. And believe me, there was a lot of act- there was a lot of motion picture activity surrounding the book. It was a whirlwind. So I mean, the answer to your question is yes. What would have been his, his motivation to start talking about this in 1994, 1995? Uh, there was no movie. There was no book. But the fact is, he was talking about this back then to a number of people, and there was always over the horizon the possibility that there was a book because. UFOs and Roswell were becoming hot, although when his rights were published, his life story rights were purchased by the motion picture company, it was not for the day after Roswell. It was for a story on POWs because Corso was one of the most knowledgeable individuals still around who knew the story of the POWs that the Soviets held back at the end of World War II, the Koreans held back at the end of the Korean War, the uh, the Chinese and the Soviets held back at the end of the Korean War, which is another stunning story, and the POWs that were, and some say are, being held back by the Vietnamese from the Vietnam War. Now, that that was what he was there to talk about and help the motion picture company with this motion picture about POWs. It would have been a very compelling motion picture. I can tell you that I saw the script. But when he dropped this bomb, and I was there because I was there not to write a book about Roswell. I was there to uh, write a book about my own specialty, which was World War II and the Holocaust. And um, Corso was a part of that history of course he fought in world war ii but there was this one incident which really got everybody's attention which was real briefly corso had saved the occupants of one of these displaced persons war refugee camp essentially a, a, um, a concentration camp for jews but it was in italy outside of rome he repatriated them to palestine it was his own little version of of, of exodus and we were calling it corso's list um, it's really an amazing story how, how Corso and Lucky Luciano and Meyer Lansky oh boy. story all the to, to repatriate all these occupants and, and uh, by the way Menachem Begin well, for the Stern gang to get these people back in the and how that almost cost him his career in the army the British wanted Corso's head because he smuggled people into Palestine and Eisenhower yanked him out of Rome and sent him to Fort Riley, at which point the Roswell story commences. This was not some grand design, although people would say there were no coincidences. However, that was the story, not Roswell. So there was fame and fortune, and there was a movie, and there were all these things at the outset of Corso's life story being optioned by the movie company. What happened to the movie, by the way? The movie The Day After Roswell? No, the movie about the other stuff. Well... This now more than explains what happened in kind of 
I've always called this the day after Corso. So this is a day after Corso segment. The book was more successful than, than, than the movie company thought, and here was the reason. We began working on three books simultaneously. The day after Roswell, the day after Dallas, which is a more compelling book than the day after Roswell in terms of American history, and uh, which is about the Kennedy assassination, because Corso worked for Richard Russell, who was a member of the Warren Commission. And I saw his badge, I saw his notes, we went over this, that was our, uh, that was our next book. And the other book was called An American in Rome. That was the book we were originally going to write about World War II, and then get back to the whole issue of POWs. Because he'd been there, he was an intelligence officer, he, he, he had been at the forefront of this. He was on MacArthur's staff in the Korean War, targeting Soviet and Chinese air bases with nuclear weapons. If you remember American history, one of the things that Truman fired MacArthur for was um, publicly stating we were going to use nuclear weapons in Korea. And everybody was so horrified at that, they said, no, 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 the Chinese will attack us, the, the Soviets will drop the bomb, when of course they had no capability to do so. That was what Corso was involved in. Simon and Schuster had seen our publisher, and, 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 and I had a long background with Simon and Schuster. I'd done a number of true crime books with them, a number of computer books with them back in the 1980s, and so I had a long history with SNS. And they said, look, you, uh, they're looking at all this material. You've got the Roswell 50th anniversary coming up. Let's do that book first, and then let's go back and do the Kennedy assassination, because the, the anniversary of the Kennedy assassination was coming up, and then we'll go back. We will do the World War II book last. So what happened was the, the Roswell book was a runaway bestseller. It hit the bestseller list within three weeks after publication, stayed there the entire summer. And I'm telling you, I'll tell you this, that when in Hollywood money starts rolling in, everybody gets squirrely. I don't care. I don't care if you are the most moral person in the world, if you're a saint. When the truck of money pulls in to, the, to your coal bin treasury and coin of the realm starts going into your house, or let's say a common fund, everybody gets very nervous at seeing this. And within weeks of publishing, this book became the treasure of the Sierra Madre, because of the amount of attention it got. You've entered another dimension. You've entered the Paracast. in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney. We're talking to William Burns, publisher of UFO Magazine. Go to ufomag.com, co-author of The Day After Roswell. And now we're talking, I guess, the backstory. This is the back. This is the day after Corso. So what happened was uh, there was a lot of activity. Simon and Schuster went crazy. <laughs> oh boy! <laughs> excited, right? And they were really excited for two reasons. First of all, the book was an original pocketbooks publication hardcover but an original po pocketbooks publication and for them to have an original bestseller 
was a breakthrough. So they were really excited, really excited. And we began talking about sequel books immediately. One of which, by the way, I'm publishing under the aegis of UFO magazine called Dawn of a New Age, which is, of course, those workbench notes. So that's coming out uh, in, in a few months. I'll tell you what, let's move this on here, because so I know we can go on for quite a bit of time as uh, to the, the elements of this discussion. I think mm -hmm. we need to center on the most important thing, of course, which is the reality of what Mr. Corso said. Let's kind of back up a little bit. Maybe this would clarify things. You're doing these books or preparing to do these books on these other subjects that he dealt with in his life. How did Roswell come to be? How did the Roswell issue come to the fore after all this other stuff that he had done? At basically a briefing, we were all sitting around going over all the material, and we're talking about World War II, and Corso was talking about being at Fort Riley in 1947, and that's when he dropped this bomb about having seen the alien in some coffin. He says, well, you know, uh, you know, I was there in 47. It was the stupidest thing. It, we were talking about military secrets, Gene. And Corso said how sometimes the Army was so stupid in handling its military secrets. For example, they sent these bodies from Roswell, and they put them at Fort Riley. But they didn't have a guard. They just put them in Fort Riley in the old veterinary shed uh, on their way to Wright Field. Well, so everybody at the table, I mean, you could imagine the collective what circulating the table. What do you mean? And he said, oh, it, it, it. and he regarded this as casual. You know, don't you know that the Army pulled off a whole separate package that, that didn't fly, that, 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 uh, that they trucked up to Fort Raleigh and then trucked up to Wright Pat, oh, not Wright Pat, Wright Field, because the services, the armed services, were separating, and the Army was getting very squirrely about keeping its own Roswell debris separate from what would be the Air Force's Roswell debris, because they wanted to get this alien creature up to Walter Reed Army Hospital and get it autopsied right away. So, obviously, the living alien didn't go to Fort Riley. The living alien went right to right, pattern, to right field. The dead alien, one of the dead aliens, uh, was, was at Fort Riley. So, Corso drops this bomb, and we said, well, what happened? Suddenly, the whole table, you know, forget World War II, right? We're all talking about what happened. He says, oh, yeah, well, you know, back in, then in 1961, Arthur Trudeau, my old boss, brought me back into the Pentagon, and, and to take some of this junk, it was junk just dirty junk to industry and figure out what it was and how we could uh, make the, make use of it. And he told the story of Strom Thurmond and Arthur Trudeau and said uh, and some of this stuff was just the stupidest thing you'd ever see. And then he described what was a laser cutting tool, what was a fiber optic cable. It was a, it was a wide junction of fiber optics. And he described some things and he described this fabric that couldn't be destroyed. And now we are panting. So all these books the Roswell book, the World War II book, the Kennedy book, these are all up at SNS, and that's when they said go with the Roswell book first because this is the most compelling story for this current occasion. I have to come back to questions about this flight class that was briefed, Bill. You mentioned that they were told that there were these two separate species. Two questions. Is, is that to imply that they had some kind of interface or experience with more than one species, A, and B, are there any other members of this flight class you've tried to track down? I am tracking them down now, Dave. I can only tell you we are trying to go through the records of that flight class, who is still alive, who can confirm this. We're 
pouring over material here, the magazine, we suddenly may have ourselves a treasure trove of witnesses who might have told their stories to their children. This is, I mean, we came across this. Now, Stan Friedman, my friend Stan Friedman, who writes for UFO magazine, he interviewed the Magruders years ago, and we've been talking back and forth about this. And yes, the implications of this, we both agree, are stunning for the Army to have done this. So yes, both he, Stanton, and I are looking now at what other members of that class, Stanton's going to send me some of the uh, master's theses written from that class, I'm going to send him Magruder's master's theses, master's thesis, about what, what kinds of material might have come out of this from the students who were there. There were writing. So that's, first of all, we are looking at that. Two, the implication was that the military had had some kind of interface with these entities, because how could they have said in July 1947, unless Mac McGruder came upon this information later, but how could they have said some were hostile, uh, some were not? Now, we knew from 1952, don't we, that there is there was hostility. Remember, in 1948, Mantell's plane was shot down over Godman Field, right? So we knew that there was at least one takedown of a plane. And then in 1952, we lost planes over Washington. And we did go into kind of like a mini-air war with extraterrestrials in the 1950s. Now you're raising a bigger issue here. Yeah, we expand that. Hold on. Maybe let's assume our audience doesn't know about this. What are you talking about? Well, you know about the 1948 loss of, of, of the Thomas Mantell aircraft. Right. Of course, the spin on that was, of course, that he was chasing Venus or something, or Mars or one of these things. But we found... Chasing swamp gas. It was that, too, we, yes. We, Gene, I found another living witness. This will, be in the, this will be in the July issue of UFO magazine. A woman who was... Uh, she was Charles Painter. Charles Painter was the uh, communications director in the control tower at Godman Field. He worked at... For, Godman Field was the airfield for Fort Knox, Kentucky. And um, he worked in that control tower, and he called his wife, Phyllis, to the field and said, you've got to come down. It was a half mile. You've got to come down. You've got to see this thing. It's floating over the airfield. She came down, it was around 3 in the afternoon when the object was visible from the ground, and she described this thing in the same way that Mantell described it over the radio, a huge, metallic, glistening object that was not a balloon, that was holding position over the airfield. An eyewitness still alive to that 1948, January 1948 afternoon, okay? So this was not a balloon, this was not swamp cast, it was not Venus. Because I said to her, Phyllis, people have said this was Venus. That, that She said, Venus at 3.30 in the afternoon? <laughs> a balloon that can hang stationary? That you could see from the... She said, it wasn't a balloon. She said, I, I was in the service in World War II. Mantell was in the service in World War II. My husband was in the service in World War II. Don't you think they would know a balloon... They were flying Project Mogul balloons over the middle of Kentucky. So, yeah. no. So we have a witness to that. A, a, another one on the ground. So uh, that was, a, and she said, the, 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 the poor man, he was chasing this thing. And, and either it shot him down or he ran out of oxygen or, but he crashed. Well, in 1952, over the nation's capital, there was a whole series of UFO incidents. Edward Ruppelt wrote, Edward Ruppelt, remember he was in charge of Blue Book, Edward Ruppelt wrote that the people in Washington knew that 
these objects would be coming over the East Coast because a quote-unquote scientist from an agency he cannot name, this is in print, anybody can see this, it's not top secret, um, had warned them, the Air Force, that objects would be coming to Washington because they were seen off the East Coast. Sure enough, on July 19th and 20th, and then on July 26th and 27th, these objects appeared over Washington, and again, we have newspaper reporters, eyewitness accounts from the field, from the air, from the ground, from radar, about these objects moving over the Capitol, over the White House, over the Washington Monument, over Washington itself, and we scrambled jets in 1952 to go after these. And in one very compelling story, uh, one of the press officers at the Pentagon, Al Chop, wrote about how they were in the control tower at D.C. National Airport when the flight leader of one of these groups chasing a UFO, Red Dog One, was surrounded by UFOs, blips on their radar, and disappeared from the sky. And the person who was called to the Pentagon to pick up the thread of the story, the person who was called to the Pentagon that night on July 26, 1952, for some reason was that very same Lieutenant Colonel Mac Magruder, who had been exposed to the Roswell huh. alien in 1947. He was picked up in a police motorcycle escort with a, with a, a, a black staff car. They put him in back. They said, just come here. He went to the Pentagon war room. They watched the radar. He stared at the military officers. They stared at him. Nobody knew who had what clearance, so nobody <laughs> said a word. They Jeez. looked at each other, acknowledged that they're seeing something very strange, and left. And Magruder told that to his children as well. You've entered another dimension. You've entered the Paracast. We're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney. We're talking to William Burns of UFO Magazine, co-author of The Day After Roswell. And we're talking about the backstory after Roswell, maybe the follow-up. And this particular question we were asking here is what evidence is there of hostile intent? So we have this airplane that disappeared off the radar scope, right? Yes. Now let's move flash forward in time to 1957. And Philip Corso is this is how the two stories dovetail. This is why I'm trying to tell you how, how, how excited I was when I came across this. Philip Corso is in Red Canyon, which is the Army missile base that's part of White Sands Missile Proving Grounds in New Mexico. So Corso is at Red Canyon, and he is the leader of his own battalion of anti-aircraft missile, uh, a Nike battalion. This is, and this was Corso's main job, by the way, in the Army. He was an artillery officer who became an intelligence officer, and they put him in charge of his own battalion. This was after he left the White House, where he was on President Eisenhower's national security staff as a military liaison. He wasn't on the National Security Council. He was on the staff as a military liaison. 
And um, he begged Ike, you promised me, in other words, you promised me my own military command. Um, I, uh, can I have it? And Eisenhower said, fine. And we can go into what Corso did with Eisenhower on another subject. Again, that is stunning. This man had a stunning career, what he was exposed to. Goes to Red Canyon, and there he is testing the, the uh, Nike missiles. Why? Because we're going to be moving the multi-stage Nike anti-aircraft missile with nuclear weapons to the southern flank of Germany. Remember, this is the height of the Cold War. The Soviets have more tanks, more planes, more troops, more missiles, more guns than we do. What are we going to do? And here is Corso, for anybody who wants to doubt what the Army thought about this guy, who was one of a handful of officers with tactical nukes. Remember when we were growing up, Gene, um, those Ravel models, and one of those Ravel models was the, called the atomic cannon. It was a real thing we had in the, in the, in the 50s and 60s. It was, a, it was a cannon that fired nuclear shells. Well, Corso basically had those nuclear, had those tactical nukes uh, at his disposal. Um, not his disposal, obviously, but in, in Germany in, in the 1950s, late 50s. Well, they're testing these, not the nuclear weapons, but the missiles that are carrying them in Red Canyon. In order for these missiles to be successful, the targeting radars had to be very exact. Now, the reason I'm mentioning targeting radars is that some folks have said that it was the targeting radars at Roswell, at the Army base in Roswell, the 509th, that interrupted the anti-magnetic envelope or the anti-gravity envelope that was surrounding these crafts that allowed them to navigate. They, they hadn't yet developed a shield for this radar that disrupted the magnetic field, and uh, the craft lost power and did a crash landing. So, obviously, here we are in New Mexico, and we're testing these targeting radars, and Corso gets these strange orders from the higher-ups at the base. We want you to turn your radars off at X hours, X minutes, X seconds, mm. and leave them off for X minutes, and then turn them back on again. And Corso is saying, this is a strange, this is like a train timetable. What, what's going on with this? So what he does is he kind of winks at a sergeant, you know, maybe you can shave a second or two off. The sergeant does. They stand in awe at these strange blips flying over the screen. Their radar was supposed to have been turned off so they wouldn't see these blips. So there's obviously some kind of communication going on between among these craft or the pilots of these craft and the ground, because how do we know when to turn our radars off in advance? We have a timetable. That raises a much larger issue, and I mm. think we can almost do three more shows on this. So what I want to do, Bill, is have you back closer to the time that your June issue is coming out, maybe late May or something like mm -hmm. that, and let's really call that part two where we'll, first of all, have a chance, hopefully David and I will have a chance to read this yeah, material, I'll, and then I we can respond you, to I it. I will send you the article when it's done. Very good. It, it will, it, it will blow you away. You will be, you will say that this story is actually in some, in, in some respects bigger than Corso because, uh, although this person can no longer appear, obviously, um, but it's bigger than Corso because, quite frankly, this is, this is a, an eyewitness to a living alien. Oh, boy. Thank you very much, Bill Burns. 
the publisher of UFO Magazine, co-author of The Day After Roswell. And we invite all of our listeners to go to www.ufomag.com, www.ufomag.com, to learn more about the publication. Bill, thanks for joining us, and we'll talk to you in late May because we've got lots and lots of questions we're going to have to ask. Thank you, Gene. Thank you, Dave. Bye-bye. Thank you, Bill. You are about to enter another dimension. A dimension not only of sight and sound, but of mind. A journey into a sinister land of secret rites, passwords, initiations, and handshakes, where the truth remains hidden and history is controlled by an elite group of mysterious men. Imagine, if you will, that I'm holding a book in my hands that explains this secret history and that the name of this book is Conspiracies and Secret Societies, The Complete Dossier. Here is described centuries of dark dealing, lies, murder, mayhem, and cover-ups in the pursuit of unimaginable money and power. My name is Brad Steiger, and the stories you are about to read may have actually happened at the signpost up ahead. Your next stop, Conspiracies and Secret Societies, The Complete Dossier. You're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biani. You never know what's going to happen next. For 58 years, fate has provided true reports of the strange and unknown. Fate brings you the latest in all aspects of the paranormal, like angels and miracles, psychic phenomena, ghosts, UFOs, and much, much more. To receive your complimentary Fate magazine, call now at 1-800-728-2730 or visit their website at www.fatemag.com. That's 1-800-728-2730 or www.fatemag.com. What are you waiting for? Your fate awaits. Scotty, beat me up. Oh, man. So... Uh, I'm speechless, Gene. This is, like, outrageous. I want to know more about the rest of that class. Who else saw this creature? What the hell was that all about? I didn't expect that at all. I expected a spirited defense of Philip Corso, which we got, and he pointed out certain areas where people who have read the book have misinterpreted what he was saying, which is not that people discover this technology as a result of alien information, but he helped them jumpstart development, which is a very key point, that they're working on the prelude or the rudimentary stages of integrated circuits, and he brings in something that takes him to step two. He didn't just seek out people and said, here's an invention, build it, assuming what he said was correct. Then right. he just goes to these companies that are already working on this kind of technology and says, I got something here that's going to move you 10 steps ahead. And that doesn't change who gets the patents. It doesn't no, change who is not. credited with the development. So that's pretty astounding. But that class, I'll tell you, we've got to get him back on in a few weeks and explain that and a lot more stuff. I mean, this description of this being that doesn't match anything else in UFO literature that I've ever read, and that someone so qualified was making these claims, I, I, I want to know more. Now, I, I want to read that new issue of UFO magazine. I'm chomping at the bit for that. Well, he said he sent us a copy of the article before it goes to print so we can do a show on it. So let's hope we're lucky enough to get that information because it is something that it starts me thinking now a lot more. 
And it looked like he's got so many stories to tell about Corso. Some of them don't really cover the subjects we deal in, although I want to ask him about the Kennedy assassination since we have that connection between Fred Chrisman, uh, alleged connection that Ken Thomas talked about. Fred Chrisman, one of the Harvard patrolmen in the Maury Island UFO case, and then he turns up as a witness to the Garrison investigation of the Kennedy assassination. So... Why is there a connection at all between the UFO mystery and the Kennedy assassination? But this is getting to be really strange, and that's another big question I want to ask him. <laughs> this is getting to be beyond strange, Gene. Where is this all going to end up? Are we going to be spirited, uh, spirited away by men in black? I mean, is that what this is leaning towards? Well, I don't know. I mean, I know of instances where people have talked about things and then they get visited or allegedly visited by people that also could be a good cop-out you know someone has a sighting and maybe they just don't want to talk about it anymore and they say this is another thought about the three men in black by the way maybe something you can take with us they say hey i was just visited by three men in dark suits or black or whatever and they said they're from the military they're from the government whatever and they have decided that i shouldn't talk about this anymore and because I shouldn't talk about this anymore, I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to talk about it. Yeah. Now, maybe they're only saying that, hey, you know what? We don't want to really address this anymore. I've had enough talking about UFOs. Let me come up with a good excuse to get rid of you. You know, next week on the Paracast, we'll be talking to Dr. Roger Lear. He's a physician from Southern California, and he has performed, according to what he tells us, 11 surgeries mm. for removal of metallic and non-metallic objects from individuals who alleged alien abduction. Outrageous stuff. I'll tell you something. Are you an abductee, David? you got to tell me. I've been asking you about this. You've kind of been coy about it, but I think it's now as we progress to the end of this particular show and we're moving into three months of this program coming into our third month have you ever been abducted no you sure about that uh, maybe by a couple of uh, really pretty girls once but that they weren't aliens decidedly human well maybe they acted human <laughs> i have friends who i sometimes wonder whether or not they're humans or not i have some friends that are very bizarre creatures my friend Paul Mavridis. Paul, I wonder if you're a human. He's got superhuman artistic abilities. I don't know that he's an alien, but I wouldn't swear against it. I don't know. We'll never know, or maybe we will, in future <laughs> episodes of The Paracast. The Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney is a production of Making the Impossible Incorporated. Join us next week for a new adventure in The Paracast. 